Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With both a spoiler and spoiler-free analysis, there's something here for everyone. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Welcome back to Becoming Buffy. In this week's episode, we will be talking about the spoilers section of Homecoming, which I feel like it's always fun to be able to kind of break down fun episodes. Like I was actually excited to break down the non-spoiler section just because like it's a really entertaining episode. Um, but there's a lot of little like either moments or stuff that kind of kickstarts a lot of themes in this season. So I'm excited to talk about some of those things. Um, I think this is one of those rare episodes where there, I feel like there's a lot to talk about in the non-spoiler and then there's lots to talk about in the spoiler. So I'm excited. Yeah, we finally get the introduction of the mayor, which is really exciting because mm-hmm. I feel like he's a very unique and interesting villain. Yeah, and there's just a lot of stuff to talk about. The first thing that I noticed in this episode is like the first, I guess, hint of tension between like or not tension but just like the start of the tension between angel and giles this season um i think that after passion we're so preoccupied on angelus and everything that's going on in season two and then angel leaving and then you're like oh my gosh angel's back and then you forget that like he really hurt giles um, which feels like it, we shouldn't forget that, but for some reason I always do because you're like – you just think about like Jenny's death and then Angela's killing it and then you forget that that was Angel. You know what I mean? Like I always separate Angela's to Angel. Um, and so when he comes back and then Buffy mentions Giles' name and he like looks all guilty and it's hard because like people could criticize Angel not really apologizing to, to Giles, but it's also hard because I think everyone knows how Angel feels, but he also is trying to be respectful of Giles's space and they don't really talk and or really are close at all after this. And so I think it's one of those things where some people really need an apology and really need that. And then people like Giles is more of like, I don't want much to do with you. Um, and I think the angel can sense that. And I think he's giving him space is like the best thing that Giles needs. But sometimes I think about that. I'm like, like would an apology really help? Or like, would like him trying to build rapport with Giles again help? Like, I don't know. It's very odd. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get the sense in this season or even in the rest of the show that Angel necessarily feels like Giles needs space. I think that Angel's just so consumed by guilt. And I think it's also, I mean, he killed the woman that Giles loved. There's just any, and then he set it up in such a way that just was absolutely devastating. So I don't think that Angel feels like there's anything he can do or say to make it better. And so I think it's just a matter of, he's just not even going to try. But I think that Giles, it's very justified his feelings towards Angel. And I think that we actually, like when we see, I think it's, is it in Revelations where it's revealed that Buffy's been harboring Angel and Giles gets really upset at her and tells her, you know, you have no respect for me or the position I hold. It's a rare moment of him being very harsh on Buffy. And I think that's part of his grief and his fear over Angelus coming out there. And then I think about amends too, where he turns, 
like he helps Angel a little bit, but he comes out with the crossbow and stuff. And yeah, I think that it's it's easy to forget just how much Angel hurt Giles. And yeah, it's just it's very it's very sad because like we've talked about on the podcast, they were really close, and like Giles was super excited to to meet Angel and see him when he first saw him in I think um, out of mind, out of sight. But I think a big part of the reason why we forget is because we don't really see a lot of Giles' pain. And so we kind of forget that it's a big That's deal. A whereas like yeah. Buffy, they really dive into her pain, whereas Giles's pain is kind of pushed to the sidelines. And I think part of that is because like Giles is older and therefore he knows how to deal with grief a little bit better than Buffy just because of experience. But I also think it's a little bit of lazy writing. I think that they could have and should have dived into Giles a little bit more and they didn't. I don't know that it's lazy writing as much as it is. There's just so much going on because we'd really have to dive into Giles's grief in the back half of season two. And I mean, I think that would require things like go fish. Like I would totally replace go fish with an episode all about Giles's grief. I think that'd be excellent, but we know that they kind of ran out of time because they weren't used to writing 22 episodes in a series. But I think that in season three, they literally could not fit another thing in the storyline. There's just like, there's nothing else to do. And so the brief scenes that we do get between Giles and angel, I think I feel like that's adequate enough to kind of show us that Giles hasn't forgotten Jenny, that like he's moving on with his life, but there's always going to be that part of him. That's just always deeply in pain because of it. This episode, although I think it's great and it's amazing, blah, blah, blah. I, this episode kind of made me sad because I realized that this is the last Cordelia centric episode we get on Buffy. Yeah. And then I just started to think about Cordelia's whole arc on Buffy, obviously excluding Angel. And this last rewatch, I just realized how dirty they did Cordelia's character. Yes, I agree. Like, 100%. it just, it made me so mad because I just was like, Cordelia starts out as a interesting character that has potential for growth. Then season two, personally, I feel like is peak Cordelia. She's starting to make strides. She's starting to grow. We're really seeing her like care for Xander and grow and not care about people's opinions, all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yay, you're like rooting for who she's becoming. And then it's like season three, I feel like she just reverts back. Like this whole episode, I just, I don't see season three or season two Cordelia. I see season one. And like, I still love season one Cordelia, but she's just very different. And then, oh, actually I changed my mind. We have one more Cordelia, technically centric episode, which is Doppelgangerland or the the wish. The wish. The wish. Yeah. Technically, yeah, yeah. that's not even Cordelia centric because she dies halfway through. Yeah. So and so it's like it doesn't really count. Yeah. Either either way, uh, this one I I would really consider to be the last like Cordelia centric one. The other one just kind of more features Cordelia, but it doesn't really have anything to do with her. But like, it just made me sad because I was like. They really just like screwed over Chris McCarpenter's character for the sake of everyone else's storylines. And like, thank God she went over to Angel and actually had some redemption there, except for the fact that they ruined her her storyline at the end there too. But it's like, yeah, I just like think about it. And I'm like, Cordelia, no wonder why like Chris McCarpenter was so beat up about the response from Cordelia. It's because they did her so dirty on Buffy. Yeah. I think that Cordelia was a product of its time and not knowing how to handle strong women without making them, pardon the word, but 
bitchy. Like, and, and if they are that, then they don't know how to show them being strong and uh, kind. And I think that Cordelia is a huge missed opportunity because, and I think this is a huge compliment to the actress, Charisma, because she gave so many more layers that she really handed the directors and the writers so many opportunities in Cordelia's character where you saw moments of her being soft. You saw moments of her being kind to Buffy. You saw moments of her thinking selflessly when she had to. And yet they didn't really utilize that. And it really frustrates me. And I know that that's a product of its time, but it's also frustrating because there's so much, like Celia said, so much potential in Cordelia's character and she was misused. And I think we've touched on this a little bit. I've always been frustrated how the ending of Cordelia's character, but then re-watching it, it's always like, this season, Cordelia is really great. And then this season, she plummets back. And then this season, she's really great. And that continues on into Angel. I don't know. It's just, it's very frustrating. And I know that I'm looking through through the lens of today, but seeing how they could handle female characters, especially during the time, like they had a character like, um, like all the clueless characters, they were able to mesh some of those aspects and meld it pretty well on them. And that was 94. And this is what, 99. So I don't know. It's just, it, it can be a little bit frustrating. See, I don't think Cordelia is a product of her time. I think that they did really well with Anya, who is basically like Cordelia 2.0. I think they did really well, even with Harmony. I mean, Harmony ended up becoming a really great character, even though, you know, technically she's a soulless vampire. They still did a really good thing with her and gave her somewhat of an arc. Um, I think even at times, Buffy has the potential to be kind of snarky and stuff, kind of like Cordelia. And they still were, and they made Buffy, obviously, a very strong, confident, but also kind woman. So I don't think it's because of the time that it was in. I think it's because Joss Whedon didn't like Charisma Carpenter. And I think that it's also due to the fact that the show did not do a really great job with the side characters. It did a better job with the side characters than most other shows. Like, I will say, like, Cordelia, Anya, Tara, even, Oz, to a lesser extent, but... All of them are better written side characters than most other TV shows. Most other TV shows either don't have side characters or the side characters pop in like once every couple of episodes and they're not really very layered. Um, But it's hard going back and being kind of like, even I feel like Andrew in season seven has a better arc and not a better arc. Well, I guess a better arc than uh, Cordelia in Buffy at least because there's some sort of resolution and stuff. It's just very sad with Cordelia because you literally pick up on the first episode of season four and it's like, there's no mention of Cordelia leaving Sunnydale. And it's very, very odd that such a strong, prominent character for three seasons is gone and they don't even talk briefly about, oh yeah, she went over to LA or whatever. So I think that it's more, and now that we know all the stuff behind the scenes, I really think that it had more to do with Joss's own opinions of charisma who knows if he, I, I don't think he liked her based upon how he treated her, but it, it feels more like apathy. Like he just didn't really care what happened to her and it was reflected in her character. And it makes me really sad. Um, there's another theory that I have too. David Greenwald, the, the writer, and he was also a uh, producer and stuff of the show. He, after this episode, this is the last episode that he writes for Buffy, um, at least for a while. 
think it might be the last one ever. He goes and transitions over. He's actually the head like um, showrunner for Angel. And that's where Cordelia ended up going over. And I've heard Charisma talk many times about how David Greenwald seemed to understand Cordelia the best. And so I think that once he stopped writing for her here in Buffy, we get less of Cordelia on here because David Greenwald is over. Like he was starting to work on the scripts and stuff for Angel. So it would make a lot of sense why they weren't focusing so much on her here because they were trying to kind of gear up for Angel. Um, Still a missed opportunity, but I think that's part of it. I think I agree with you with how like um, Joss Whedon handled her. I think I'm more saying – I. I think I disagree that Harmony and Anya were replacements of Cordelia and they did a better job of her, their art because I view them very differently as characters. I didn't say Harmony. I didn't say Harmony was a replacement or even Anya. I don't think they're them as replacements, but a lot of the with both of them, they used a lot of the same tropes with as they do with her as someone who like always speaks their mind and stuff. Sure. I just think that they're very different characters is what I'm trying to say. It's like, I, yeah. think, I think Anya, they can use her as a foil of being that person to kind of speak her mind, but only because she used to be a demon and, and now she doesn't know like the difference between being a human and a demon. Right. But you can say that they're completely different characters, but also say that they're still strong, confident women who also can be somewhat, in your words, bitchy. Because you were saying that you felt like that time period didn't write very good, confident characters without having them be like that. And I was saying that Harmony and Anya both did that well. Well, what okay, I, I see what you're saying, but I'm also saying that like Cordelia was what a lot of movies showed as feminist during that time. Anya has a huge soft side to her character already ingrained because she's in a vulnerable state as being a new human. Whereas Cordelia is only ever really seen as that harsh, rough, aggressive, like bully type girl character. And usually those characters are given somewhat of an arc so they can kind of mellow out. Um, And there were aspects and hints of Cordelia being softer and all that stuff, but they weren't really delved into. Whereas whereas Anya, she shows a really cute, sweet, like, like, like not innocent, but like very oblivious side. And Mm -hmm. so they kind of married the two. Yes. They married the two really well. And she was very relatable. I'm just saying that Cordelia was a missed opportunity and usually represented a lot of, oh, let's show feminism in television, but not really know how to make them relatable normal still it was all just them being angry and like you know what i'm saying like i i I agree that there are similarities in like the replacement of anya and cordelia in the show i just think that there was there was a lack of um a well-rounded view of cordelia yeah and buffy well yeah and i and i don't know that cordelia was necessarily supposed to be like the feminist character i think it's she literally was created to be the mean girl and they were going to go somewhere with her arc and make her softer and that's what it seemed like in season two and then i'm guessing somewhere around the end of season two beginning of season three they go hey we're going to do this show angel they talked to charisma carpenter got the okay and we're like hmm how can we get her off the show and it's just it's frustrating because how cool would it have been if cordelia at the end of season three goes, Xander, I love you, but I can tell that you still care for Buffy. You're, you know, you slept with Faith, whatever it is. And then have her choose to break up with Xander or her say, hey, I love you, but I want to pursue my dreams in Los Angeles. Yeah. And he's like, no, I'm need to stay in here in Sunnydale because I want to be with Buffy. And she's like, give nope, her this, the power. Like, 
But the fact that yes. she was cheated on and defeated as like a character and then like yeah. there's nothing after that. Nothing after like her being yeah. cheated on. You have a little right. moment where she's like, stay away from me. And you're like, period, girl, know your boundaries. But like nothing after that. How cool would it have been if she left on her own accord? Because I guarantee you – they would have written it if they hadn't have broken up. She would have stayed in Sunnydale, mm-hmm. obviously, because they had Angel. They probably would have had them stick together if um, Angel hadn't been in the works since she was on that show. But yeah, it's just it's very frustrating because I think there are so many other ways that they could have transitioned her and had her decide to leave Sunnydale. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's just hard because. Buffy did such a good job of creating an interesting mean girl and giving her depth. And I think it's hard because it's like. We wanted more. We wanted an ending that fit the good character you made. Right. Like Cordelia wasn't given a good ending on Buffy. um, Yeah. Which it just sucks. Not to change pace, but I wanted to mention. I, when I'm watching this episode, it made me sad for the friendship that we never really got to see very much of Buffy and Faith yeah. and how their dynamic could have been healthy. And we see glimpses of that in season seven um, when Faith has kind of gone through it and stuff. Um, but it just like made me sad, like seeing Faith like be the only one to defend Buffy, to stand up to like Scott and all this stuff. I was like, like this version of Faith is just so pure. Yeah. Um, kind of like marrying what you're saying, Leah, about Faith, but then also kind of um, finishing up with Cordelia. This to a lot of people. So Cordelia was initially created to be the shadow side of Buffy, basically what Buffy would have been like if she hadn't come to Sunnydale and become a slayer. And this episode is the finishing of that arc for Cordelia in that sense. Cordelia stops being Buffy's shadow self in this episode. And it's it's kind of empowering to watch Cordelia say, man, like you have all this stuff, Buffy, you are a slayer. Why would you want all this stuff? I have nothing, or at least I, my life is not as, I guess, meaningful at this point. Cause we know that Cordelia wants that. My life is not as meaningful at this point. Um, I, I want it to mean more than that. And I am more than just the wallflower And I think that's kind of cool. And it's also interesting because Faith is now geared up to step into that role of being Buffy's shadow self. And it's really, really interesting how Buffy and Faith's dynamic, their relationship changes so many other relationships. There's a lot of underlying metaphors of Faith kind of taking on the role. I'm not going to say love interest because I don't see it as that, but Faith takes on that she takes on that role, even though I don't see her and Buffy as being romantic, similar as in season five, Dawn takes on the role of the love interest. I say that in quotations, um, the metaphor of the love interest, but it's the metaphor of family. So in this one, it's uh, for Faith, a lot of it, it's uh, Buffy's shadow self. It's Buffy's two sides warring with each other. All right, let's talk about Xander and Willow. (laughs) I'm sure you guys have lots of thoughts on this. I knew we were going to have a time to talk about that. Oh my goodness. Uh, here's the thing. I don't hate that they explored it. I actually am very grateful that they explored it because it makes moments in season seven with the speech about the red crayon or yellow crayon or purple crayon, whichever one. Yellow. Crayon. The yellow. Thank you. Sorry, guys. Um, She's only seen Grave like once. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. But it makes those scenes more impactful because Willow – By that point, you know for a fact that Willow and Xander are purely friends. And that scene can be important because you know there's no romantic feelings there. And so I'm happy that they explored it. 
However, it makes me mad that they explore it when Willow is dating Oz. Because it makes sense for Xander's character to want to explore it when he's dating Cordelia because it's like the new shiny thing. I don't care if it makes sense. (laughs) But I think that it doesn't make sense for Willow and Oz. And I think that's my problem is just like, why? And then it makes me even more mad because it's like, oh, you have this cheating storyline between uh, like Willow and Oz's relationship, but then they get over it and they get past it. And then it's like, ooh, how do we write uh, Oz out? Let's throw another cheating storyline in their relationship. Like, I just don't like how they chose to build up Willow and Oz's relationship and make it look so healthy, but then they throw them these weird curveballs. Mm-hmm. It just feels a little kind of inconsistent to me. Or that they they aren't – like their relationship, some of the stuff they put in there doesn't make sense for the relationship they're showing us or what they – actors are showing us you're like wait what like willow says that she loves oz and they're so sweet together and yet she's hiding a secret affair for four episodes and then it's like in the next episode or next season's like oz would have never in his wildest dreams done that you know and then all of a sudden it's like oh we're just gonna throw this in so it makes a reason for him to leave and you're like this doesn't make sense for the relationship you're showing us this doesn't make sense for the relationship you're writing and the actors are making it come to life. Like it just sometimes they throw in stuff that you're like, this is makes no sense to what the story is telling us. So I, it's hard for me. So I feel like I can separate out the Veruca Oz Willow thing because I see it as Oz's werewolf side took right. over almost like I see an angel slash angelus type thing. It's the whole beast thing that we've been told this entire time. So for me, I feel like, when that happens, I'm like, this isn't Oz cheating. Like he very clearly, like when he wakes up in the morning, he's like, oh my gosh, like, no, like we, and we see that Willow doesn't see that. And then of course the writers, because they needed Oz to leave, never really give Oz a chance to explain himself fully. Um, at least before the climax of the episodes. So I can forgive that when it comes to Willow and Xander. Okay. So this may be controversial, but I don't hate it. I'm not saying I like them together, but what I'm saying is that I feel like it's very realistic. I feel like sometimes we forget that people are flawed and we forget that they write these characters to be flawed and to make mistakes. Do I believe that Willow and Oz absolutely love each other? Yes. But do I believe that Willow loved Xander? I'm not going to say necessarily that she loves him in season three romantically, but did, did she love him at one point? Absolutely, yes. And they've done a really good job of showing us this over the past couple of seasons. So it makes sense that there's still a part of Willow that when Xander started to make that move and they had that moment that there's a part of Willow that has always wanted that. And so it's the temptation of, I can finally have what I've always wanted, if that makes sense. So I feel like that is a very human thing to write in that moment. Um, but I will say on the flip side of that, I think this is the weakest element of season three. This is a really good season. And I think their romance is written in purely to get Cordelia out of the season. So I think it's very weak and they could have done this in a much better way. I would agree. Cause I, I also don't hate, the fact that they explored it, because I mean, for all the it has a purpose. Yeah, yeah, it has a purpose, and in the end, I do think that it's good that they explore, it, especially this early on, because 
later on in the, the, se- get the show. Get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like you didn't want to get to season seven and you're like, well, you know, there's been a lot of groundwork for Willow and Xander, but you know, never <laughs> like so I'm right. glad that they, I'm glad that they did something. It's just I feel like the way that it was done, I don't I don't know what I would have changed necessarily. Maybe before Oz was in there or something. make them have a conversation where they actually address it because they never even talked about it up until now. Yeah, it just yeah, I don't know. And I'm not trying to be nitpicky. And I feel like I, I'm not trying, like I love the show and it does so many things right. I think that's why we focus on the negative sometimes because it's like there's for like 99 things it does right. There's like a couple things that it doesn't do right. Or it does something right, but then like there's something slightly off about it I'd change. Um, but I think it's just one of those things where I don't know. They just they did Oz's character dirty, they did Willow's character dirty, they did Cordelia's character dirty. It just I don't know. It could have been done a little better, in my opinion. Yeah. I think, like you said, Leah, the best thing that came out of this was the fact that we know we'll never do that again. Like Willow and Xander are forever friends after that. And it it actually is kind of refreshing in the later seasons to look at them and just be like, they're purely friends. And it's nice to not always sit there and be like, oh, gosh, are they going to put them together this season? You know, so. Okay, what are your guys' thoughts on the mayor? This is the first season that he's in or the first episode that he's in. And he's so interesting. What are your thoughts on him as a villain? How they introduce him in this episode? His introduction is so interesting because I feel like the mayor and what he is introduced as is very different than what he ends as. But it's just, it's very interesting. Like the season just really throws you off. You really, I remember the first time I watched this, even though the mayor was introduced as like the big bad. I always thought that Mr. Trick was going to somehow outsmart him and Mr. Trick was going to kind of pull one over on him. That's really interesting. I had never heard that before. Really? That's what I at least thought because Mr. Trick was just so intriguing and so interesting. He does seem built up to be like someone who's going to be around for a while. No, he really, really does. And the thing is too is Mr. Trick really did remind me of a Spike-esque character. And Spike, even though he didn't beat Angelus – he definitely like kind of outsmarted Angelus in the end and like was able to get away. And so I I thought that Mr. Trick would kind of like end up, it would kind of be like a fake out where he's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's the mayor, it's the mayor. And then the trick, Mr. Trick kills him. And it's like, oh, it's Mr. Trick, which is why I was so shocked when Faith inevitably kills him. Cause you're like, wait, what? But it's just, it's so interesting because you really have no idea what they're doing with the mayor yet. And it's crazy how much the mayor has been talked about and how much foreshadowing the mayor has actually had. And it's like, now mm-hmm. you meet him and you're like, oh, he's just some white guy in an office. He's just some white guy. <laughs> like, it, yeah. like, but he's, he really is a good villain. I love that they introduce Alan Finch in this one too, because that's the guy that's eventually killed by Faith. And they kind of show how he is his right-hand man. He's the guy that kind of goes out and gets all the information and brings it back to the mayor. Um, And then Faith takes on that role. It's just like, it's really cool how we can see that all the way this far back. So then I have another question for you guys. What do you think the mayor as a villain represents? We kind of touched on it a little bit in the spoiler-free section. What do you think that the mayor represents as a villain, like his main purpose and role as a metaphor brings to the season? Daddy issues. Daddy issues. (laughs) That's definitely in there. You're not wrong. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing. Yep. (laughs) I think it's more of the metaphor of how – not only is the slayer 
have an important role and can have a dark side and can have an influence on that. I think it's also supposed to show that your watcher does a lot as well. Because, mm-hmm. like, I really always viewed the mayor as kind of like a, like, kind of how Faith is a quote unquote dark version of Buffy. Mm-hmm, I kind of always player. saw the, yeah, I kind of always saw the mayor as a quote unquote dark version of like a watcher or Giles. Kind of how that, that, beautiful relationship between Buffy and Giles is twisted into something very dark and perverted Mm. uh, with Mm -hmm. the mayor and with Faith. But I also think that it's interesting that they had the character, the mayor come in in the same season as the one where Giles quits the uh, Giles gets fired and the same episode where, um, he has to test Buffy and uh-huh. it like really fractures their relationship yes. for a while. I think it's because it's supposed to show how much a, a slayer needs a watcher and someone mm. who is there with them, supporting them and like how much that relationship is very important. Um, at least that's the storyline that I always thought was very fundamental in this season was like Buffy needs Giles and Faith needed someone like that too. I always kind of view it in different ways as well. Like if Buffy and vampires and all of this world is a metaphor for adolescence growing into your adulthood, then I think that it's important to kind of discuss what parental figures or people above them can uh, mm-hmm. can like mold and or shape them shape into. you. Yes, that's, that's sure. pretty much what I'm saying. Yeah. And then I always kind of looked at it again after looking at that because I think that's the most obvious one. Um, But then you always look at it later on and you're like, okay, so the mayor was supportive and sweet and all these nice things to Faith. And at a certain point when you kind of leave that hole underneath someone's wing into adulthood, you have to stop blaming your upbringing, blaming um, what you've been taught your whole life, blaming people who have taught you things and kind of quote unquote molded who you are and take your actions and take responsibility for them. And so I think that they kind of talk about both in this season. And although Giles was instrumental in who Buffy is and the mayor is instrumental in who Faith is, both the girls are responsible for their actions. Mm-hmm. And even though Buffy had a bad upbringing with her parents, she still has to choose and be the person that she is. And yes, Giles does feed into that, but Faith was also underneath Giles's wing and she still chose to go to the mayor. So, yeah. So I kind of see it a little bit differently. Tabby, you were kind of like getting close to what I was trying to talk about or what you're my good, but not great. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean it like that. I just meant like you're like you're getting there. Like, um, and this is something that I have only recently discovered in this last re- rewatch as well. Because I've always been kind of like, okay, what does the mayor symbolize? Because the mayor has always kind of stumped me a little bit. Um, and I kind of saw it as Leah did, like, oh, you know, he's just the dark, kind of like the dark father figure. But I think it's a little bit more than that. And this is, I think, this is really interesting. So this is what I've discovered. So we've talked a lot about how season three is a lot about throwing off authoritarian like leadership over you and a lot about how we're we're coming out from underneath you know childhood where you have a lot of 
parental figures, teachers, all that stuff over you and how you kind of have to become an adult. And that requires a lot of times shedding the authority that's over you. We're never fully out from authority when we get older, but you know what I mean? So this is really interesting. There's a running theme in season three that is specifically about community and leadership. So do you guys remember in Go Fish when Snyder was all talking to Willow and was like, hey, I want you to be in charge of the computer class, but I also want you to give, um, I forgot the guy's name, uh, A's on the swim team. And he's like, be a team player. Remember how we talked about that? that? That mentality of like, do it for the team, do it for the community. Well, we see a lot of that language represented in what the mayor says as well. He talks about like, the children are our future. He mentions that, but his word his verbiage is very specific as in the children are our, our future, as in the older generation. And do you guys remember what the slogan is for the class of 99? And in graduation day, it's the future is ours. And so it's a very cool parallel that they're trying to show of the whole concept of the mayor is the authoritarian figure who is in charge of the community but doesn't actually care about the community. And that's represented in him transcending and becoming this giant snake who's going to literally eat them and swallow them whole. And it's the idea of a leader who doesn't actually care about his community and is just using them to further his own power. And I think that's a really cool concept. And you even have Snyder in there who's like subservient to um, the mayor as well. And you have Faith over there who kind of falls underneath, like I think the mayor did care for Faith and she cared for him, but she kind of falls underneath this tra- and trap of like, I'm my own person. Like I can do whatever I want. I'm going to throw off the bonds of authoritarian, which is like Giles and Buffy and all that stuff. And I'm, wow, I'm so free now. I can do whatever I want. But then she's really just serving the mayor who's, you know, evil and has an even worse authoritarian plan. Um, but it's also, there's a huge contrast between the mayor and Buffy herself. So think about in Anne, they had the whole sickle um, and the, um, I can't remember what the other thing was, um, the, the symbols of oppression, how she was helping all the oppressed people. And Buffy takes on a more, um, a different type of leadership where she not only like she's still serving the community, but instead of doing it for more power, she's doing it because she actually cares for them. So there's a very clear contrast between Buffy and the mayor. And we're also going to see that throughout the seasons. So, you know, in uh, Dead Men's Party, Buffy encourages everyone to work together. In this episode, Buffy's smear campaign and the divide between her and Cordelia caused them to splinter their vote. And then it shows what happens when we don't work together. And then this all foreshadows in the prom and graduation day when Buffy's recognized as someone who leads by bringing people together and sacrificing for her community versus the mayor who uses the community for his own needs. So the prom is supposed to be a very clear correlation. And I mean, there's also the the comparison between the prom and homecoming too. Buffy talks about how she just wants one good high school moment. I she gets about, that I moment. About that, yeah. And so on top of all of that, then we have gingerbread. What's gingerbread about? That what happens when the mayor feeds into the fear of the community? And they blindly follow it. And they blindly follow mm-hmm. it. So then they start burning books. They start well, that, there's you know, that whole like like infamous, like I don't know how people say it, but it's like when you take time to mold the new generation, mm-hmm. they're the ones that that really kind of create our new future, you know? Yes. Um, and it's really pivotal that your good parents, that your good teachers, that your good 
selfless higher-ups over them because Mm -hmm. they're the ones who have a fresh take on life. We're set in our ways. And I think that the mayor is a good representation of that. Buffy is a good representation of somebody who's looking at life innocently, who's looking at life like it is. Whereas like everyone else is just kind of stuck in routine, stuck in Mm -hmm. what they've known based on what their life experiences are. Buffy is looking at and observing everything for what it is. Um, That's Mm -hmm. why things hit younger people harder. It's because everything is new to them. Everything is fresh and you look at things innocently because you don't know much. Therefore, you observe everything. Yeah. So if you think about the rest of season three, I mean, you think about the wish. They bring back the master who once again is using the community for his own. Like He's turning people into actual blood banks. Um, and then you have, um, what's the other one? Oh yeah. And then the next episode, Ban Candy, where the mayor literally turns all of the parents, the adults into teenagers. And then so that he can steal the babies, the children, the future and feed them to this monster. So it's like, there's over and over and over again, there is very clear metaphor and parallels of this authoritarian rule versus, you know, but helping. yet, even adults who were acting like um, teenagers didn't carry themselves out of that situation. Who did? Buffy. Right. So yep. even even those who were kind of like, quote unquote, stunted at their age, they're still not able to have the outlet on life that young people are, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just thought that was really interesting. I never thought about it before of the whole mindset of like how the mayor is literally supposed to show what happens when you have a bad, powerful, evil, corrupt authoritarian figure who literally is using politics, people, the community for his own gain versus the younger generation standing up and saying, no, the future is ours. And Buffy being kind of the representation of that. Okay. Tabs, you want to talk about that one beautiful moment that Buffy has? I I mean, there's not really much to say all the, other than the fact that you could tell that she craves that this whole season. And so there's just a huge payoff in the prom because you see her like just wanting one moment to look back on and be like, I don't know, I was in the world. I did something. I I made an impact. I had a moment that everyone else is supposed to have. I I think it's also just really cool that the classmates recognize her Mm -hmm. in that moment. And that is supposed to like, you know, contrast this episode where she's literally using her schoolmates to get votes. And then in the prom, she's learned. I mean, she's always been serving them and stuff, but it's a very cool like comparison. Even as viewers, we were kind of supposed to be trained to see things the way Buffy sees them. So us sitting here being like, how has no one noticed that Buffy's doing all these things? And so for us to like Buffy, get to see everyone acknowledge her is such a payoff for Buffy's character, but such a payoff for us as well. Cause we're like, finally I were breaking the fourth wall. People have noticed. I know. I remember when I saw that, I was like, what they yeah. noticed? Like, well, this is weird. Since, like, guys, like how much of this can you actually excuse? As <laughs> I just your eyes play tricks on you. It's like, okay, so you guys aren't stupid. Like you just <laughs> chose to like not acknowledge it. Yeah. So this is really cool. I don't know if this is necessarily canon, but um, you can actually buy, I think it's on Amazon, the Sunnydale um, class yearbook. And it's because, you know, Buffy missed picture day. Um, They have her, her picture from the prom 
in in that spot. And so some Aww. people, a lot of people think that it's canon that, you know, how she talked about how she wasn't going to get her picture taken, that they use that picture of class. And then and it says class protector underneath it, too. Oh, that's so cute. I know. Who I would just, they put so in I there, should... though? Like Jonathan and like yeah. Larry? Who else? Yeah, and <laughs> Harmony. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I just think that's really precious. And I like to imagine that that's what they actually did is they put her picture in. But yeah, I just think uh, I can't wait to get to the prom. I think that's one of my top 10 favorite episodes ever. Which is it's funny so because it's like the the breakup of Bangel, but it's like it. Oh, I know. But it's done so well, and it's not like it's out of the blue. Everyone knew it was heading there, and the way it's done is very respectfully done. The mourning and, like, the reason why they break up, like, it's not for a lack of, like, one person not liking the other person or whatever. It's like we all knew that this wasn't going to, like, work just because he's a vampire, she's a human, yada, yada. But it's just funny that that's like one of my favorites and yet like they literally break up in the episode. I know. I know. It's It's got very high highs and then low lows. It's like the best of everything. But I just thought it was funny. There was like a – when she talks about – I already forgot his name. What's his name? Hope. Scott name. Hope. Um, <laughs> you already forgot Scott's name. Literally <laughs> forgot his name already. Um, <laughs> he's a nice character, but he's also forgettable. Um, every time we pop up, I'm like, oh yeah, Scott. Okay, cool. Then move on. <laughs> um, when she's talking to Angel and she's trying to convince herself that she really likes him and or like trying to tell him that there's someone in my life. Um, it reminds me so much like it's the same energy as when she goes on to the show Angel and then tells him that she loves Riley or has someone oh, else alive and loves yes. him. And you're sitting here being like, girly, but do you really though? We haven't seen you say it on screen in front of him yet. And even so, yeah. and I think I can name on my hand how many times she says she loves him. And every time it's always like, love you. Like her trying to like push it out or like convince herself. No, 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 no. Buffy never tells Riley she loves him. She's never told in the entirety of the show. She never tells what? him she loves him. Yep. I was about to say, I, I was like, I know I haven't seen yeah. that season very many times. So I was like, but no, I'm pretty sure. I swear she says it to him at least no, once. No, she She's only not. ever says it to Angel. Well, and she says it to Spike too, but yeah, she's never uh-huh. said it. She's never said it to Riley ever. She she says she loves him to Angel. She tells Angel that she loves him, but she never ever tells Riley that she loves him. You know, what? I'm gonna challenge you on that right now. We're gonna we're go gonna, ahead. We're gonna go, go look through the podcast on on season four, and then I'm gonna wait for the moment that she says she okay. loves him back. No, you not, do it. I'm not talking about like a moment where she's like, "I love you." I'm talking about like in passing, like like bye, like love no, you. No, she doesn't say love you. Yeah, no, she doesn't. I'm challenging nothing. it. Okay, go ahead. Let's see. Season four and season five. I know I'm right. <laughs> Jeez, so much humility. I'm looking it up right now. I swear she says it. No, she doesn't. She just only tells Angel. Yeah. I yep. swear. I still am challenging it. No. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look for it. And you guys, let us know. If you guys know if Buffy ever tells Riley that she loves him to his face, then let us know because I'm pretty sure I'm right. And I'm not talking about like this whole like prophetic, like a moment, like romantic moment where she's like, I love you. But like, okay, even in the end of season four when he's going all like bonkers, like trying to detox from like the- No, she um, doesn't tell him she loves him. Nope. Let me get it out. Let me get it out. Okay, okay, um, okay. When she's like trying to detox, he's trying to detox from um the initiative or whatever, and he's going all like physically like insane and killing him, not killing, his the- 
virus, whatever that's happening, whatever metaphor that is, I'm not even, I don't even care to know what the metaphor is. Um, he's like, he's like dying from like, you know, removing himself from that environment. And then she has the whole, she's like, no one's ever known me as much as you do, yada, yada. I swear that she says I love him. And, she and says that, that in season five, not in season. Oh, you're ta- yeah, that's in season five when he's coming off the withdrawals. I think that's end of season four. That's literally right before the climax. No, season five because he's like punching the wall. It's when he's in the caves. Is that what you're remembering? Maybe. Okay. Well, apparently we're a little rusty on season four and season five. I so don't care to have fun. anything <laughs> to do with Riley. Yeah. No, he just – she never tells him she loves him. He tells her he loves her when they're like in the middle of sex, but she doesn't say it back. Well, that was also because that was faith. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, same thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, God. No, it's not. But, okay. All right. Well, that is homecoming spoiler section. And if you guys happen to know if Buffy tells Riley that she loves him, please let us know. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts. And as always, guys, you can find us on Instagram, on Tumblr, on TikTok, Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. And let us know what your guys' thoughts are on the whole symbolism with the mayor, all of the stuff with the community. We want to know what you guys think. As always, guys, we will see you next week.